Well, it's amazing to be here with you guys today. Um, I do have to say a lot of time has gone into preparing for today. It's not an easy topic, but let's dive right in and um, explore what being a woman is all about. So if you had to define a woman, what would you say a woman is? Maybe that would have been a really good question to write on our post-it note. Well, in 1972, Helen Reddy famously described a woman in this way. Oh yes, I am wise, but it is wisdom born of pain. Yes, I've paid the price, but look how much I gained. If I have to, I can do anything. I am strong. I'm invincible. I am woman. And we love it, don't we? We love that song. But is every strong, wise, pain-tolerating thing in the world a woman? What is a woman? Well, thankfully, our Prime Minister in the last month has actually answered the question for us. So we're going to take a quick look at a video. And bear in mind, he used to be the health, the Minister for Health as well. So turn to the screen. I just wanted to ask the uh, given comments by Keir Starmer in Britain. How do you and how does this government define a woman? Um, I, to be honest, Sean, that's, that, that question's come slightly out of left field for, for me. Um, the, well, biology, sex, gender, um, people define themselves, people define their own genders. Uh, has said that he believes 99.9% .9 of women do not have penises. And I know it's a strange thing for him to say, but given recent events in New Zealand, I'd ask again, how do you define what a woman is? Well, as I, I, I think as I just indicated, I wasn't expecting that question, so it's not something that I've, um, you know, formulated, pre-formulated an answer on. But um, in terms of gender identity, I think people define their gender identity for themselves. Well, how did we get here? How did we get to this place? Well, last time Marielle at Refresh, she so helpfully walked us through the four waves of feminism that have actually brought us this point in history. So I'm just going to quickly um, take us back through those. So the first wave, women fought and rightly fought for equality, the right to vote, the right to be educated, and the right to be seen as equal. And then we moved to the 60s and the second wave brought us the sexual revolution. Women now had control over their bodies and the consequences of sex. And they called for a re-evaluation of the traditional gender roles that our society had placed on us and an end to sexist discrimination, which again, are all great things to fight for. But throughout this time, Sigmund Freud had influenced lots of people's thinking and we're actually being led to believe that our identity is now defined by our sexuality and our internal self. So what I am, my sexuality and desires, they make me. And then we move to the third wave and that begins in the 90s, early 1990s to the early 2000s. And in that time, we embraced the spirit of rebellion rather than reform. The third wave feminists, they were encouraged in encouraging women to express themselves in their sexuality and in their individuality. So my sexuality is now who I am. And now we find ourselves in the fourth wave, where our inward feelings are king. If you feel like expressing yourself a particular way, then you are free to do that. You do you. Our identities are now shaped by how we feel. But if our identities are shaped by how we feel, it's no wonder we've ended up in the place that we have where our Prime Minister can't even answer that question clearly, what is a woman? Gender confusion and role in indifference. I don't know about you, but my feelings go up and down, round and round, in and out, all over the place, like every minute of the day. But last time we actually saw a better picture as well. God's word gives us a better picture of who we are. We have dignity and worth as people created in God's image. We're given a new identity as we are united to Christ called to be God's children and co-heirs with Jesus. We're promised an inheritance that will never spoil, perish or fade. That's who I am as a human. 
And one of the effects of our cultural heritage for us as women is that we tend to spend our time fighting and focusing on how we need to be equal with women. And so much so that it actually robs us of the goodness and the beauty and the uniqueness that God has intended us to have as women. We can forget that equality is not all God has to say about us. And so today, we're going to spend some time looking at the beauty of difference. Now, one of the things I love is going for a walk in the park and looking up at all the different trees and sometimes laying on a picnic blanket and um, just appreciating the trees that are around me. And one of the things that I love appreciating is all the different colours of green in the tree, in the leaves. It's the part of creation that is different. There is so much difference amongst all the different shades. Imagine if every tree colour, if every leaf on every tree was exactly the same colour. If God, like some bored computer programmer, opened up his colour palette on his computer and just found the first green and went fill all, every tree in the world. Part of creation, part of the beauty of creation is difference. And as we open up our Bibles, the first difference we see is around our value and our worth. Genesis 1.27 says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Unlike everything else in creation, we and we alone, we image God. The second difference is that those who image God are not the same. Genesis, 21, uh, tw- Genesis 1 verse 27 continues. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. We are male and female, totally equal, but beautifully different. If God made us different, that's worth celebrating. That's worth getting excited about, and it's worth dwelling on. Because it's in the differences that we actually start to understand who we are as women. So what is a woman? Well, firstly, we look different. Our bodies are different. Let's get that one out of the way. Our hips spread wider in puberty. Our chests grow out, whether we want them or to or not. Our uterus will shed blood, whether we want that to happen or not. And to remind us of the potential that we are able to bear children at some point, whether we want them or not. Our bodies will carry more meat than muscle, and generally, we act differently. Women generally surpass men in verbal skills. But I do have to say, if you've met my husband, you'll understand that generalizations are made to be broken. We are generally more relationally driven, and so we find our sense of worth in relationships. Did you know men have 20 times more testosterone in their bodies than women have, which will make them physically larger, stronger, and they possess a certain competitive driven nature. These differences, they're all part of God's creation, the way that he has created us, and they're there to be celebrated. All you need to do is open up the pages of Song of Songs and see the way Solomon describes the women, the female form. She is beautiful and she is wonderful, and it's to be celebrated. And for Solomon, that is a very, very good thing. But looks can change. Generalizations, we can argue against them. And is it really just our bits or lack of them that make us a woman? In our world of gender identity, the answer can be really confusing. So while culturally our world really struggles to define what a woman is, the world of biology actually has a very cool answer. Biologically, sex isn't defined by the amount of testosterone or the size of our breasts or even the bits that we do or that we don't have. Biologically, we're defined by the way that we relate to one another in reproduction. So biologically, the female sex is defined as the adult phenotype that produces the larger gametes. I'll explain those terms soon. Biologically, the male sex is defined by the adult phenotype that produces the smaller gametes. So what does this mean? Well, females always produce the larger, always possess the larger contribution to reproduction. So the ova or the egg. And males will always possess the smaller contribution, the sperm. What's interesting is biology defines us by the way that we relate to each other. 
And that's exactly how God defines us, relationally. So remember back to Genesis 1, we are made in his image and likeness, male and female. Our male and female relationships are designed to reflect and image the relationships in the Trinity. God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The three persons of the Trinity are defined by their relationship to one another. God the Father is only the Father because of the Son. Without the Son, he couldn't be the Father. God the Son is the Son because of the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. John 4, chapter 20, John chapter 24, verse 4 tells us that God is Spirit. He defines, He is defined by the person of the Spirit. And all three persons of the Trinity are defined by one another and how they relate. And that's the key, the relationship. So male and female were made in the image of God, defined relationally, in relationship with God and with one another, male and female, equal but different. If you try to look at some of the other ways the Bible defines differences between men and women, yeah, we actually come up pretty empty. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, for instance, talks about head coverings fitting for a woman. Shaved head was not fitting for a woman. But even then, it's all about how we relate as women and how women relate to others in the context of that passage. There just isn't much on how to define the differences of a woman to a man unless we talk about the differences in how we relate. So like the Trinity is defined by the relationships of each person of the Godhead, we too are defined by the way we relate to one another as men and women. And here is where we see the beauty of the difference again between men and women. So what does it look like to relate to each other as men and women? Well, let's start with what's not different. The majority of scripture talks about um, how we are relating to each other equally. So Paul in Ephesians 4 says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. As we look at other parts of Paul's letters, we're urged to love each other constantly, to even outdo each other in love, to bear with one another in love. We live in harmony with each other, belonging to each other as God's household. Pursue good, practice hospitality, live in fellowship with each other. We're to be kind, forgiving, compassionate, speaking the truth, welcoming, encouraging, and accepting. Men are told to be compassionate just as much as women. Women are told to be strong just as much as men. Most of all, we are all called to imitate Jesus. The Bible's main priority for the believer is not manliness, it's not womanliness. It's godliness. It's to be Christ-like. And we need to hear that really strongly. I do wonder sometimes that perhaps we get a little bit sidetracked with being individuals and worrying about our identity and how we're going to express that, rather than thinking about the character of our Saviour, whose likeness that we are being shaped into more and more each day. Imagine if we've spent more time fighting to be like Jesus and less time worrying about being equal with men or above them or beyond them, like our culture is trying to press us to be. In our Bibles, we are told to complement each other. So that said, what can we actually learn about what it means to be a woman in the relationships and in the differences in the relationships that God's word holds out for us? Well, I think as being a godly woman, God's word gives us a couple of characteristics uh, categories of relationships that help us work that out. So today we're just going to look at three, although there's, I've done a sneaky thing and included an extra one. Um, so what does it look like to be an older and a younger woman? What does it look like to be a godly wife? And what does it look like to be a godly mother? We could have looked at many other possibilities and we just don't have the time to cover it. But uh, let's continue these conversations as we go about our weeks and our days and continue exploring what it looks like. So let's firstly look at the older and the younger woman. In Titus, Paul tells us in Titus chapter 2, verse 1 to 5, 
that you are to proclaim these things consistent with sound teaching. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible, sound in faith, love and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behaviour, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind and in submission to their husbands, so that the God's word will not be slandered. Notice the difference here between men and women is that the women are to teach the younger women and younger women are to learn from the older women. And the purpose of all of that in verse 5 is so that God's word will not be slandered. Ladies, we have a critical role as women to protect God's word. If we aren't living out the way that God intended us to live as women, we're actually speaking irreverently of God and we portray and encourage a negative view of God. It's easy just to fall into the ways of the world and and let our thinking and our actions be shaped by those influences. Often we want to censor out God's word and the way that it teaches us to live, but we've actually got it the wrong way around. We need to hold those things out more firmly. That's how God wants us to live. So how do I behave as an older woman? How do I behave as a younger woman? Well, firstly, let's uh, just explore the older woman. She needs to be a role model and a huge encouragement. When I was 19, which was like not very long ago, um, a much, uh, an older woman came and approached me at church on Sunday, uh, one Sunday evening. And she came up and she said to me, look, I've just been thinking it'd be really great if we could meet up and read the Bible together. And I was like, what? Like, you're amazing. You're really godly. And why would you want to meet with me? Um, and I was quite taken aback. And so at first I was like, oh, no, I'm not sure if I want to do that. But at the same time, I was really keen and really wanting to um, meet with her because I'd seen how wise and compassionate she was and just how godly she was. Anyway, I said yes. And we met for a couple of years. And she, um, looking back, she's actually been a huge influence on my life in my Christian walk and in my faith with God. Um, she walked with me through lots of different seasons in those early years of marriage as well. And we were able to keep on meeting. And she's at, her and her husband have actually had a lot of influence on us as we've gone into ministry. And so I'm really glad that I said yes to meeting with her. She was concerned for my godliness. And she was concerned with actually teaching me the Bible. She pointed me to Jesus on a regular basis. And very often... She was also a model of what it looks like to be a godly woman. So it works out in our everyday life. And Paul tells us in Titus that the older women are to teach what is good. Let's explore that a little bit more. What is good? Well, Titus gives us three categories. The first one, loving my husband and children. How do I relate to those people that I live with and do life with? The second one, being self-controlled and pure. What, am I, what does my inner character look like? The third one, being workers at home and kind. What do my daily activities look like? So as the older woman, I'm going to be thinking about the message I give to the women around me. Do I show reverence to the Lord? In my speech, in my clothing, in my actions, in my priorities that I have for my life? Am I relying too much on that glass of wine at the end of the day to relax? Or does the need for caffeine drive me so hard in the morning that I neglect my time with God over having a cup of coffee? Do I guard my words carefully and let my speech be seasoned with the truth of the gospel? How central to who I am is this idea of teaching and leading other women and children? Part of the way God has made us is to look for the opportunities for ways to teach the good news of Jesus. There are so many opportunities. It could be to your own children. It could be to other people's children. It could be to other women, to your friends, to your family. And that means I actually need to know what God's word says. And when I think about this, I actually feel really inadequate. I don't do a good job 
I often think to myself, what if like the person I'm meeting up with, they don't agree with me or what if they don't like me or what if they just want to stop meeting with me? But I think we need to put our feelings aside and think about what is the word of God saying and what is important as women. What should I be spending my time focusing on as an older woman? Well, it's relating to women and children with the purpose to encourage them and to train them. And I think that is intrinsic to who we are as women. We have the unique privilege to teach other women how to be women. No other man can do that. That is really what is part of being a woman. Now, when Paul says older, I don't think he means old. So if you're in your 20s, you are older than all the teenagers in the world. And they are trying to discover who they are. And they really could do with a guiding hand, a voice of wisdom, someone just that little bit older to walk beside them, to teach them how to be self-controlled, how to be kind, how to be pure. I have four teenagers and we're almost, and I would appreciate that for my teenagers. <laughs> if you're in your 30s and you have little children or you're working full time, you are older than the average uni student. And they could use an older woman to sit with, to read the Bible with, to pray with them, and to remind them to be self-controlled, pure, and kind. It's still really important. One of the joys of our church is that we have a whole entire uni church congregation. In fact, lots of you are here today. And there are younger women at that uni church congregation who are younger than lots of the women in our morning congregations. So if you are keen to meet up with a younger woman, come and chat to Mariel, come and chat to me. We can definitely help you be trained and equipped to do that. If you are in your 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you most likely are already aware that you're old or older. <laughs> so look for the opportunities. Look for opportunities to teach and to encourage other women. Teach them to love their husbands. Teach them to teach their children about Jesus and the love and sacrifice that Jesus has shown us. Teach them to be self-controlled with food and drink and words and actions. To be pure in their thoughts. To be thinking about what they feed their minds. To be kind and to be focused on pleasing our Lord. The temptation is, as we get older, and we don't have to be that old, is to think, I've done my bit. I was so keen to teach people when I was in my 20s. I led youth group. I was, you know, running a Bible study. And we think, oh, time to sit back and let somebody else take the reins. But the older we are, the more responsibility we have. We don't retire from being a woman until we're in heaven. And even then, I think we'll get to celebrate that. And so the relational responsibility we have is even greater as we get older. So take the responsibility and take it seriously. Secondly, for the younger woman, and obviously that's all of us in the room, right? Like none of us are old. We are all to be encouraged and we are to learn. Look for opportunities to observe the older women in your life and in your church community. Um, if you're an older woman, if an older woman offers to meet with you, really consider it. Take that and think about it really carefully. Think about how you might work your week so that you can meet up with someone and read the Bible with them and learn from them. Look for ways that you can serve her, but you can also learn. Younger women, we all need to work on being godly friends, treating each other with purity and being intentional about pointing each other to Jesus. Paul reminds us in Timothy chapter 5, of his first letter. Don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with all purity. Younger women, we are all to consider ourselves sisters in Christ. As a younger woman, you may or may not be married. Either way, you should consider anyone who isn't your husband as a brother or sister in the Lord, and therefore treat them with purity. Friendships, they can hinder our growth in the Lord, or they can be a real blessing, full of encouragement, and spurring each other on to godliness. 
we can be really bad examples to each other. And we can put too much emphasis sometimes on, oh, should I be friends with them? How much should I hang out with them? How do I form a friendship with them? But as we take the advice from Proverbs, as women, we can cultivate godly, helpful relationships with each other and with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So what are some of the ways that we can be a blessing to women around us as the younger woman? Well, Proverbs 12, 18 says we can use speech and wise and healing speech instead of reckless words. Proverbs 13, 20 says we can look for friendships with people who are wise rather than foolish. Proverbs 17, 17 says we can work at being a loyal friend. When the, and so when someone's going through a rough patch, I think we do need to stand by them. Don't let the the thought of somebody not being a good friend to you put you off being a good friend to them. So often I think we overthink these things. And so when someone's experiencing some sort of illness, whether that be mental or physical, not giving up on the friendship is really important. Just because you might not get as much from them, that can be a real struggle, I think, and a temptation for us sometimes. We need to be ready to say and hear the difficult things and also hear Christian encouragement, but rebuke. We can be givers of trustworthy and good advice, but that actually means we need to learn what the good and trustworthy advice looks like. We'll aim to be a friend who sharpens the other person, seeking to become more and more like Jesus. Friendship is to be characterized by love and purity between men and women. Paul reminds us in the first letter to the Thessalonians that God's will for his brothers and sisters is to keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honour. So Paul encourages us to pursue love, sexual purity, goodness and righteousness in truth, aiming to please the Lord, exposing the deeds of darkness, because God's wrath is coming to those who are disobedient. Because as God's people, we've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. Friendship between men and women can be deep and rich, and there's no need to sexualize those deep friendships. It's so easy these days. We're pushed into thinking that just because you're good friends with someone, you must be attracted to them. Don't confuse friendship with attraction. Think in a brotherly way, in a sisterly way. I certainly have never had sexual feelings for my brother, but I love him dearly and I'm very involved in his life. One of the ways that Rowan and I have tried to deal with this kind of conundrum in our marriage is that we always try to make sure that if I'm friends with a guy, my relationship with that guy never goes deeper than Rowan's relationship with him. This is a really good kind of guideline. It's not a rule. It's just a helpful guideline. So if you're friends with a married guy, make sure you're friends with his wife as well. Try to be friends with both of them and if you're friends with a single guy well you're free to marry him right but up until that point your relationship should look like that of a respectful sibling relationship with all purity and honor our relationships are with men are to be like that of family related and connected by the blood of jesus so therefore treat younger men as sons older men as fathers with absolute purity and respect. Now, younger women, we also need to keep the rightful place of marriage and singleness and not idolize either of them. The Bible doesn't mandate that we all need to be married. Instead, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 12, it says, some people will choose to remain single for the kingdom of God. And Jesus also says in Luke 20, 34 to 35, that marriage is actually temporary. It's tempting, it's tempting as Christians to place marriage at the top of the priority list, to think that marriage is the greatest goal for the godly woman. I mean, after all, isn't biblical womanhood all about being a wife and a mother? Well, no. Human marriage is actually a signpost to a greater thing, to the greater marriage of Christ with his church not to be made into a Christian idol. So whether you're married or single, 
all Christians get to participate in that final picture of the church and Christ. On the other hand, we can idolize singleness. Singleness and marriage, though, they're just two stages of life. Everyone actually begins as single, and if there's a suitable opportunity that arises, we are free to marry. And those who are married can, and often do, find themselves suddenly single. These are stages of life. They're not binding. So we need to make sure that we actually keep them in their rightful place. Whether married or single, we are called to contentment. We're called to serve God with our time and our energy and our friendships and our relationships. And whatever situation we find ourselves currently in, that's the one that we are to use to serve and glorify God. So the younger woman should learn from the older woman. Take the opportunities to do that. Look to be the godly friend, treating others with absolute purity and intentionally pointing each other to Jesus. And keep marriage and singleness in their rightful places. We're going to take a little bit of time now to just pause and discuss two questions. So they're going to come up on the screen, but they're also in your outline. So the first one, how could you be the older woman for somebody else? Maybe discuss some of the attributes that we've seen in Titus that Paul encourages us to model and which one is the hardest for you. And as the younger woman, because we are, we're all older and younger at the same time. How can we be a godly friend? What does it look like? And what is difficult about friendship as a woman? So take five minutes, discuss amongst yourselves, maybe grab a drink of water or something. And we'll come back together all right i might pause your conversations it's awesome hearing so many people talking <laughs> using up all those verbal skills that we have all right i'm hoping those um conversations will hopefully lead into other conversations later at the end but let's jump back in and think about what does it look like to be a godly wife so what is a wife well she is married she's a married woman so a wife is defined by the very nature of her relationship with her husband. So what is a godly wife? Well, given marriage isn't the ultimate goal for life, and marriage won't bring you the ultimate happiness, it's very unhelpful to expect such great things from another human being. Only really Jesus is going to provide ultimate happiness. But on the other hand, Marriage isn't just some form of personal relationship, a personal relationship option. It's not just an option that we tick on the census form. And it's not some fun Facebook status update that we create. It's much, much bigger than that. Marriage is instituted by God. And while, by the common grace of God, many non-Christians enjoy rich and wonderful marriages, Christian marriage reflects the relationship between Christ and the church. Now, this design was totally stuffed and ruined by mankind's fall, our fall into rebellion against God. In Genesis 3, God's judgment on the wife was that your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Because of sin, wives tend to want to control and lead the husband. And instead, the godly wife is to submit to her husband's leadership as the church submits to Christ. Now, submission is such an unpopular idea. Even saying the word, I think we get all uptight and like, ooh, what are people going to say? Like, I use the S word. But the reason for this is actually just the horrible way that people and often men have abused their position to lord it over their wives and to rule them rather than lovingly leading them. When submission is the wife's response to a loving husband, who lays down his life in a sacrificial, Christ-like way, it's a positive and beautiful thing. It's such an attractive attribute. Let me be clear, though, we're not speaking about, when I'm speaking about godly wives, I'm not expecting any woman who to remain in an abusive relationship. Please, if that is your situation, come and speak to someone today. Uh, speak to someone that you trust. It is not submission to remain in an abusive unhealthy relationship so how does the godly wife relate to her husband well three ways with respect with love and keeping the eternal perspective i love that sonia brought that up earlier 
We honour our husbands as we respect them, as leaders in our marriages and of our families. We can so easily demean our husbands with our words, with a roll of the eyes, with a, oh, can you just babysit the kids? And simply not asking them to actually be involved in family life and discussing things together. In the book, For Women Only, which I highly recommend, the authors did a survey of 400 men and three out of the four, out of four men indicated that, that if they had to choose between feeling inadequate and disrespected by everybody or feeling alone and unloved, they would always choose feeling alone and unloved. The reality is that if a man feels disrespected, he's going to feel unloved. So one of the questions that we have often is what if our, fa- uh, our husband fails to lead us in the way that Christ leads the church? Well, Peter says in 1 Peter 3 verse 1, the wife is to win the husband over with gentleness and kindness in her everyday life. Nagging him, bugging him will only drive him further away from wanting to lead. Complaining to your friends about his lack of leadership won't help either. Pray for him to be the godly husband that he can be and to take responsibility for leadership of your family. What if, on the other hand, your husband is dominant and domineering? Should a wife still submit? Should she still respect him? Absolutely. But submission and respect don't look like women being doormats. Don't resort to dropping hints or sulking or retreating into silence when you're not getting your way or not being heard. Wives, we're not prohibited from challenging our husbands and questioning them. They still make silly decisions sometimes and they need us as helpers to help them. We are called helpers, so we need to help them. Put forward what you think in a respectful and gentle way. Don't be afraid to speak up, but do it in a way that they're able to hear. And if you experience your husband acting in ungodly ways, again, pray for him to listen to you, to hear your words, to take them to heart and to be more and more like Jesus. And then respectfully keep speaking to him. Above all, wives are to love their husbands. In marriage, this love is exclusive and faithful, rightly making each other the top priority under God. And it's not just in the erotic sense, but it's also the faithful, self-controlled, enduring love that actually requires a choice, an act of the mind and an act of the heart. But love also includes regular sex. 1 Corinthians 7 reminds us that God has created sex in marriage as the means of fulfilling God's purpose for marriage. Sex is the glue that holds the husband and wife together in marriage. And godly wives will be available and they'll be thoughtful in their attitude to sex. Remember, you don't always have to say yes to your husband when he asks, but you could be willing to be convinced instead of pushing him away. If sex is a point of contention in your marriage, it's very important to go and talk to somebody about it to try and resolve the issues. There are loads of good books if you don't want to speak to someone in person. There's a really good podcast called Java with Julie. And counselling is also a really good option. So let me encourage you to look at one of those options if that's something that you're experiencing. But keeping in mind, though the godly wife will not place marriage above The godly wife will not place marriage or her husband above God. Wives are to love and respect their husbands in order to bring glory to God. And Paul writes in in his letter to the Colossian church, Wives, submit submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Jesus is Lord, not your husband. So with that in mind, we are to keep the eternal perspective. Not expecting marriage to solve all of our problems or bring ultimate happiness, but to recognize that husbands are sinful. Yet God places us together in marriage and we have the joy of becoming more and more like Christ together each day. Be realistic about the joys and the challenges of marriage, but also remember that we both need forgiveness. And that's why Jesus actually went to the cross. He is the ultimate sacrifice and godly wives will rely and depend on Jesus rather than
than placing all her hopes in her husband. Well, lastly, let's look at what a godly mother looks like. Mothers are women who have children. Again, we see the definition here is defined by the relationship that we have with another. In Genesis, Adam named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Old Testament speaks of mothers as carrying their babies, disciplining their children, comforting them, nurturing them. In Ruth, we hear of Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, seeking to provide rest for Ruth. Mothers nurture and care for their children. And as women who are given the privilege to bear children, we are to raise them alongside our husbands, with the main focus being on raising them in the Lord. Godly mother will aim to raise their children to love and serve the Lord, showing them the truth of God's word, discipling them and disciplining them. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 to 9 says, Be on your guard and diligently watch yourselves so that you don't forget the things your eyes have seen, and so that they don't slip from your mind as long as you live. Teach them to your children and your grandchildren. So, as mothers, and even as older women and younger women, we have opportunities to impress God's truth on the children in our lives. Consider how Timothy has, was encouraged by Paul to remember the instructions that he was given and the prayers that were offered from his mother and his grandmother. We are to actively teach our children the word. It can be done through just simply reading the Bible. But there are so many other ways. Singing songs, learning memory verses, watching TV shows. There are so many better ones these days than there used to be. Reading, Christ reading stories of Christians who have set an example before us. Bring them to church regularly. As mothers, we can be the ones who make the priority in our family to bring our children to church and our family to church. Make sure we don't sign up for that soccer game on a Sunday morning. Make church the priority. Be ready to answer your questions, your children's questions about God, so that they will live for Christ and find their security in him. Pray for your children to love and serve the Lord. Disciplining our children is a massive part of being a godly mother, ensuring that discipline is fair and loving. Children need to learn obedience but they also need encouragement, affirmation, and affection. Listening to them, getting down on their level, and spending time with them goes a long way to disciplining them and understanding who they are, which in turn actually trains them in godliness. Godly mothers are to be less concerned with grades and careers and other things that the world wants to push on us and be more concerned with our children's character and their heart attitudes. So pray for these things. Pray for them to make wise friends. Motherhood is not always easy. In fact, it's not easy very often. And so raising children and being mothers is fraught with frustration and pain. And we're actually living out the effects of Eve's rebellion in Genesis 3. There's pain in childbirth. There's pain in raising sinful, rebellious offspring. And add to that, we ourselves are sinful and rebellious. So on those hard and mundane days, when it's easy to wonder, why are children called a blessing again? Keep lifting your eyes to Jesus. Most of all, godly mothers, they will disciple their children. Point them to Jesus at every opportunity. Stop and pray with them, giving thanks to God for the simple things, the food on your table, the dry clothes they have to wear each day. And just think about how we can impress the truth of God's word as often as we possibly can. Matthew 28, verse 19 to 20, should be our main go-to verse for parenting. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Our relationship with God, therefore, needs to set an example, an example of trust and reliance on God, living a consistent life, apologizing when we get things wrong, asking for forgiveness, 
talking naturally about how God provides and giving thanks to God when things go well. So the other question that often comes up is what about working outside the home? Well, what about also putting your kids in childcare or kindy? The Bible actually doesn't have heaps to say about that. There's no law against women working. And each family needs to actually work that out for themselves with their circumstances and figure out what's best. However, a wise and older woman once told me to keep these principles in mind. Life here on earth is short. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16 says, Pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time. We have a limited life. It's worth considering how we're using our time and our lives to glorify God and to see his kingdom growing. So does the type of work you're choosing to do take you away from opportunities to disciple and train your children? Does work allow you to give generously of your time and money and energy? And does your work require so much energy that you've got nothing left for your husband and children and your church family? And Another good question, why are you working? What is the purpose? Is it just to serve you an identity that you have within yourself? Bearing in mind, there are also many stages to a woman's life. So the choices that you make in one stage may not be the same choice you make at a later stage. And again, not all women are going to have children. Similarly to marriage, it's not a promise. Some of us will remain single and not have children. Some of us will marry and suffer the immense pain of infertility. Some of us will marry, have children, and lose them to death before we're even ready to say goodbye. These situations are awful. They're painful. They're heartbreaking. They're life-altering. But we're reminded in Titus that the older women have a role to play with the younger women. And even if we're unable to bear our own biological children, the opportunities for spiritually mothering other people and other children are abundant. There are so many opportunities to teach children the word of God. There are opportunities to serve God in whatever stage of life we find ourselves, single, married, with children, with grandchildren, without children, widowed, or even as a single parent. We have many, many opportunities for being a godly woman and living out our differences as women. But it's not always easy. And it's one thing here to sit here today and talk about this in theory and to hear all the wonderful ways that we can strive to be more like Christ and to be more godly. And there's a potential to go away feeling like it's just all too hard. It's like a high bar to live up to. And that's when we need to remember to keep fixing our eyes on Jesus because that is the answer to being a godly woman. We are saved, we are free to serve, and we're free to express our womanhood. We're free to express the differences as women. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 to 2 says, Therefore, since we also have a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and sin, the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and give up. But just as Jesus can just, but just, Jesus can't just be our model for great relationships. He actually needs to be our means of salvation. We can try to be the perfect one, whatever that looks like, and we can try and justify ourselves before God by living rightly. But the most, and we can also try to be the most godly friend, the wisest sister, the most faithful wife, and the most devoted mother. But none of that actually matters unless we already trust in Jesus, who has perfectly obeyed the Father and offered his body on the cross, dying in our place, taking our rebellion on himself, and making it possible for God to forgive us. So one day, then we will get to stand before God as a bride on her wedding day, spotless, blameless, and ready to spend eternity praising and glorifying God. 
if we do trust Jesus, it's so freeing. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. And that means the weight is lifted off our shoulders to be perfect. And it frees us to just simply do our best. Matthew says in chapter 11, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, for my yoke is easy, but my burden is light. Sorry, Jesus actually says that, not Matthew. This is good. This is life to the full. And Jesus, he has lived that perfect life for us. We are so free to trust in him. He has taken all the burdens for us. So let's fix our eyes on him. Consider the cloud of witnesses that go before us in chapter 11 of Hebrews. And there are many, there are women mentioned in those chapters as well. They were praised. What were they praised for amidst all of their failings? It was their faith, their faith in God's word. So let's be women who let our identities be shaped by who we belong to, to Jesus, for what he has done for us. Let's be shaped by the picture of our wonderful differences. Women who recognize the different ways that we relate to one another and how beautiful that is. Resting in the hope and standing firm on Jesus until that last day before we are made into that perfect bride for our husband, Jesus, for all eternity. And only then can we take up the call to be godly women. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the time that we've had to think about your word today and what it says about being a godly woman. We thank you for the differences that you have given us and made us as in your kingdom and in your creation. And we pray, Lord, that as we consider how we are to relate to others and the differences that we are able to do that with, that you will help us to continue trusting Jesus and striving to be more like him. Help us to focus on Christ's likeness and not to be worried so much about all the other things that come in and pressure us from outside. We thank you for making us women and for making us different and for the ways that we are able to relate to each other and bask in the glory of your creation. Amen.